This recording is from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each podcast I'll be meeting a geographical expert to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. As global climate continues to evolve and change, increasingly as a result of human interaction, glaciers around the world are affected. In this podcast, I met with Dr Anne Rowan, Research Fellow in the Department of Geography at the University of Sheffield. We discuss how do you date a glacial landform and how do glacial surfaces evolve over time. So Anne, when did you develop an interest in glaciers and glaciated landscapes? So I did a a degree in earth science at uh, Manchester University when I left school. After my A-levels I I studied geology and I was interested in earth science in general. Um, And during that time... I studied all sorts of different environments, basically, sort of proper old old rocks and um, everything through you know, igneous environments, sedimentary environments. And it wasn't really until the end of that that we started talking about climate change and how that was recorded in the geological record. I became a bit more interested in the last bit of Earth history, the quaternary period. And after my degree, I did a PhD, um, and that was, again, meant to be looking at sort of the quaternary period but and the geology of that, but a lot of it was about glacial sediments. And at that point, I started realising how interesting glaciers were because they vary so quickly and they're really, really useful for looking at fast, short-lived climate change rather than deep geological time. So you mentioned um, the term quaternary there. I'm wondering if you could just define what geographers mean when they talk about the quaternary and what period that refers to. OK, so the quaternary period is the most recent period of Earth's history. It's the last 2.2 million years. In geological terms, that's a fairly short period of time. And what defines, what makes it interesting is that it's a period of really rapid climate change. So very, many, many cycles of glaciation and deglaciation, so interglacials and glacials alternating very quickly through that period. And the very, it's interesting because we can see that reflected in the geological record. We can see very fast climate change and what that looks like over long periods of time. Can you tell me about some of the places you visited for fieldwork then? Yeah, so for my PhD I worked in New Zealand in the Southern Alps, so I spent several months there doing a lot of geological mapping, some geomorphological mapping and working in front of the glaciers. After that I've worked at, I moved to Aberystwyth University where I've been started work on Himalayan glaciers, which is what I'm still doing now, and now we actually work, rather than looking at the sediments in front of the glaciers, we're on the glaciers, on the ice itself. So we go to the Himalaya every every year or two and... Um, to actually do field work right on the middle of the glacier. So what are some of the methods or models you've used then to study these glaciers in the field, I guess, to begin with? So in the field we use um, traditional glaciological monitoring. So we're looking at we're looking at debris-covered glaciers, which are different to clean ice glaciers. They have a thick layer of sediment over the top of them. So if we want to measure how much they're melting, we have to dig through this debris layer and look at what's happening within it, how heat is moving through it. So we, we do a lot of digging and a lot of... You know, it's using bamboo poles to measure how things are changing. So it's fairly low tech in that way. Um, we then put a lot of temperature sensors into the into the debris and into the ice. We use it's not totally low tech. We use differential GPS a lot to see how the glacier is moving, how it's flowing, and also how the surface kind of evolves over time. So similar to that, which I did as an undergraduate, we go and map the geomorphology and try and interpret what that means and also collect samples to look at dating the landscape. How does that work then? How, how do you date a glacial landform? There's lots of different ways you can do it. There's relative dating, so you can just look at your landform and say, well, it's here, and another one's further downstream, so 
that one downstream is probably older because the glacier was is more recently close upstream. But the better methods are the re- are the absolute dating methods where you actually get a numerical age. So radiocarbon is something that has been used a lot in in earth science and in archaeology. It's not so good in glacial landscapes because there isn't much organic matter to date. So instead, we use a technique called terrestrial cosmogenic nuclide dating, which is look at where you date the rock itself and you look at the isotope ratios within it. And we use optically stimulated luminescence dating, which is um, collecting sediment or rock and seeing how long that's been exposed to light. So the light makes a signal in there and we can work out when a sediment has been, has been deposited by a glacier. What's distinct about um, the Himalaya landscape then where you've said you've done your research? It's totally different to anywhere else. It's huge. There, there really are the, you know, the biggest mountains on earth. Um, it's a huge mountain range. It's, it's right in the middle of the, of the monsoon. The Himalaya mountains create the monsoon. So these glaciers, unlike other parts of the world, are, at, are in a fairly warm climate. And, in a, in a, and they get a huge amount of summer snowfall as well as winter snowfall. So they melt and accumulate mass at the same time in the summer. Um, it's really high. It's the highest elevations on Earth. So and the, and the glaciers are huge. So we've, we're looking at very big glaciers changing very rapidly because they're in a warmish climate zone. And it's also it's also very densely populated, which I think makes it different to looking at, at polar glaciers because people live right in front of these glaciers and in the valleys downstream of them. So there's a huge huge amount of the Earth's population lives in Central Asia and is affected by these glaciers. How are these glaciers responding then as a result of climate change? Generally, in, in line with glaciers around the world, they're shrinking. Um, so they're losing mass every year, even though it's snowing and, you know, snowing a lot, and, and the, each year they, they gain some mass, but they're losing more each year on balance than they gain. So the, across the Himalaya, it's quite variable. Some Mostly the glaciers are losing mass, um, but it is controlled by the topography, because it's a really high mountain range. Um, in a, and overall, they're losing about the same amount of mass as glaciers worldwide. But in the Western Himalaya, or the Karakoram Mountains, glaciers there seem to be gaining mass, which is anomalous, that's unusual. And a lot of research has been done about why that is. Why do you think they're gaining mass? Well, part of the reason could be because they are in a climate zone that is they're in the westerly climate zone rather than monsoon and actually as the temperatures warm as air temperature across the northern hemisphere warms the westerly weather systems are able to go further into the mountains so the warm air can rise further and bring snow deeper into the mountains and that then feeds the glaciers so they actually are, are having more snow put into them than if if the climate was a little colder so how sustainable that is longer term is, is difficult to tell because actually as the temperature gets warmer they will melt more as well there's also a lot of unusual types of glaciers in the, Car- in the western Himalaya, Karakoram. There's surging glaciers, so they, are every, every so often, every 10 or 20 years, they will very suddenly flow down, down valley, and there's lots of reasons why that might be. So the glacier can expand very rapidly and then probably shrink away again. And there's also a lot of debris-covered glaciers, and we see these across the Himalaya, but they have these thick layers of rock debris that we're interested in, and that affects... That acts like an insulating blanket, basically. It's this thick layer of debris, and it stops the sun from warming up the ice surface so quickly. So that can cause the glaciers to survive longer than they would if they didn't have this, this blanket of debris. And you mentioned that 
places in the Himalayas are distinct because kind of communities are kind of living in those areas. How does that affect them then, or how do the communities affect the glaciers? Is there kind of a relationship there? Uh, yeah, there is, actually. It's really interesting. The glaciers affect the people living immediately nearby because they're a water supply, and that's mostly for irrigation. It's not drinking water because drinking glacial meltwater will make me fairly ill. It's got lots of sediment in it. But a lot of that water is used for irrigation of food crops and... Although we're in the monsoon region in the central and eastern Himalaya, so there's a huge amount of rainfall in the summer, people want to start growing their crops in the spring before that, and that's when the glacier meltwater is providing most of the water to do that. So if the glaciers weren't there, there's potentially a drought before the monsoon, which would make it more difficult to grow food. So the glaciers are also a hazard, potentially, because as they're changing, they start to form lakes, and there's more chance of flooding or landslides, so they're a hazard to people that live nearby them. And further downstream, they feed into the water supplies to you know, something like a fifth of the world's population actually rely on water from rivers that rise in the Himalaya for irrigation. So it's, quite, it's a large area and a large population. And they, in turn, are having an effect on the glaciers because of the way we, as humans, are modifying the climate. If countries like India and China are industrialising very rapidly. They're producing CO2, um, as, as, is, as are all countries around the world. So... That's that was causing temperatures to warm, which isn't very great, good for glaciers a lot of the time. The other problem is they're producing black carbon, soot. So they're burning coal, they're burning diesel, um, burning biomass of trees. And all that um, pollution has recently been discovered to be reaching into the high mountains and getting deposited on the surface of the glaciers. And that can, could potentially cause them to melt faster because it reduces albedo. Will you be returning to the Himalaya anytime soon then and what's the plan for your research if you are? We've got an ongoing project at the moment called Everdrill. So we're drilling, we're using basically a car wash to hot water drill through Kumbu Glacier, which is the highest glacier in the world. It's the first time this has been done in the Himalaya. And because we want to measure um, properties of the ice beneath the surface. So we've done a lot of work in the last few years on the surface of the glacier, looking at how it interacts with the atmosphere and how that affects melt. But now we want to know about how the ice behaves, how it flows. So we're drilling boreholes and putting sensors down through the thickness of the ice to look at ice flow, ice temperature and pressure within that. And um, the trip in spring is to go and collect those data. So hopefully that will be very exciting. For more information on resources and CPD events to support geographical learning, visit www rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on twitter at rgs underscore ibg schools for the latest updates this recording was supported by the global learning program for more resources to encourage pupils understanding of global issues and development visit www.glp.globaldimension.org.uk thanks for listening